0: Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host Jamie Davis the Pod Medic and we are excited to bring in our guests tonight and going to going to delve into this topic and I'm looking forward to it. But before we do that, we have to bring in my co-host Sam Bradley who is so instrumental in getting all of these guests lined up and scheduled and and so much of the behind the scenes stuff that we just don't talk about enough. So we appreciate you Sam. That's what I'm trying to Aww. say.
1: I appreciate this all to me, but you no, know, it's what it takes and to get it done. And I'm really lucky that I have people in my life who are always referring me to people tonight. And people that have come out of our community or have somehow just contacted us. You know, the interesting thing is, Jamie, the, the two people I'm working on right now, including my guests tonight, they they were saying, oh, yeah, I just listened to the podcast. Which kind mean, of was interesting because that's kind of outside how I met them. So it's kind of neat.
0: That is cool. Anyway, and nice to know that yeah, we, we nice is. to know that for folks who are listening. It's always a positive.
1: Exactly. And they know <laughs> who we are and what we do. I, I, I was thrilled by that. So first the weather. We have the Departments with us tonight. And I, I understand we're getting some snow in the Front Range here. What about
2: that, Dan? Yes, yeah, Sam. Uh, it looks like well, we 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 are headed into the uh, snowiest time of year for the uh, Front Range area, there the Rockies, and looks like folks in the Denver area can expect uh, maybe a little bit of snow Friday, and then probably a you know like a two to four inch type event, and, uh, several inches of snow on Saturday into Saturday night. So. That follows up from another uh, snow event, I guess it was uh, last weekend. So two weekends in a row with some snow in the Denver area.
1: Yeah, except we didn't get
2: any up here. <laughs> well, you got to move to Denver then, Sam. <laughs> no,
0: no, no. Hey, Dan, what right. about all this rain in in the West Coast? Are we still having that atmospheric river condition that's driving all uh, not snow but rain um, into Southern California? Is that still lined up?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, it is. It has. Thankfully, wound down. It was a very uh, stormy and uh, impactful uh, start of the week. Really, it ended up being a a flooding disaster in some of the uh, hillsides and canyons of uh, Southern California, with uh, a foot of rain in some spots. It was the third wettest uh, two day period in the in the history of downtown Los Angeles. That goes back to eighteen seventy seven. It was one of the more impressive storms on record for Southern California. All sorts of flooding uh, issues. There also uh, I think a, a million customers without power at the height of the storm across the state of California. Um, that has wound down, um, but there was still a, a significant amount of impact. So, cleanup will take a bit uh, as the floodwaters recede. Um, looks like we get about a week break of drier weather in Southern California before it could rain again uh, about a week from now. Great. And well, that
1: mud will turn into cement problem. You know, it's like feast or famine with California. They're either in a drought or they're yep. underwater. <laughs> I'm kind of glad well I moved from there. Um, but on that note, explain what an atmospheric river is, Dan. I may have asked that before, but since it's such a hot topic,
2: yeah, it's 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 pretty straightforward. I think it's that basically you have um, it's a it's a river of sort of a quote, quote unquote river uh, of moisture up in the atmosphere basically what happens during atmospheric river event is um the really rich moisture that occurs in the tropic areas of the world like near the equator for instance that gets pulled northward um and sort of is funneled in the atmosphere towards a certain area and it happens every year um some are more intense than others um these type of atmospheric river events it's basically a a lot of moisture transport in the atmosphere and uh, when you bring that towards the west coast um you can that's when you tend to get a lot of flooding issues not just california but all the way up or in washington and into uh british columbia too can all experience atmospheric river type events that and that's what brings most of the precipitation or the really heavy precipitation and flooding um to especially california when when atmospheric river events happen okay
1: here's your weather question of the week This is an interesting one. I hope I can make it clear. Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah, it's a little complicated for me anyway. So we were talking about the agitation factor when ice melts, like in the ice cap, and at a certain point, it creates energy. So apparently that's energy is getting more and more because it's getting deeper and deeper in the agitation. And so... Kind of wondering how that's going to affect the future. I mean, climate issues and so forth and so on. But, um, what do you know about that? And, and anything you might know about how that's going to affect us in the next few years?
2: Well, Sam, I think you may have finally stopped me. It's taken several years, <laughs> but I think I think we may have finally reached a point of where I I can't I can't. I actually have never heard of that before. I, I think it might be more more of the climate change side of things. Um, that's an interesting one. So the agitation factor. Um, yeah, it's something that I have not studied. Not, I've not come across that term, so I'm not sure I can comment on that one tonight. <laughs> okay, I can certainly well, I'll, get I'll back to s- us on a future episode with more information, but yeah, tonight I'm not I'll, sure I can come up with that one.
1: <laughs> I can, I'll do some research, too, because I've not... I've just came up conversation. Well, anyway, we have Colby Barrett with us tonight. Um, Colby's also here in Colorado, snow country. Um... A few things I know about him, and we'll be talking about some of them. He's passionate about protecting people from geo hazards, building resilient and regenerative local food systems, repurposing old mines and structures to fight emissions and support backcountry recreation. He's been doing geo hazard mitigation projects over 18 years throughout the the, uh, continental United States, all over the place. He's called a capitalist, And the reason I kept that to last, Cody, is so you can explain what that means.
3: <laughs> yeah, so um, <clears throat> I guess that's uh, uh related to some of the geohazard mitigation work that we do, but the concept that uh business uh for-profit businesses can have positive impacts in the world, uh especially mission-driven ones that are able to um you know exist for more than just uh, the profit aspect but actually create tangible good and uh, safety in their communities, which is, you know, something that we've, I've gotten, I've been fortunate enough to be around um, basically since 2008 uh, when I took over geostabilization. Um, you know, our mission is to safeguard the traveling public and uh, make the nation's infrastructure safer. And uh, you know, it is obviously a for-profit business. We've been successful over the years. We've grown, uh, throughout that but uh we also kind of <clears throat> uh count the lives we've saved uh over the course of the the 20 years we've been in business um as a as a real key metric it is a little tough to actually quantify because a lot of the stuff that we do um really is around what doesn't happen you know the bridge that doesn't collapse the slope that doesn't fail the rock that doesn't hit the car um but it is something that we can uh Take a guess at just seeing in unremediated slopes and and those kind of things on uh, what the impact of our work is. So that's kind of the yeah uh, uh, the reason behind the uh, the title there uh, on the LinkedIn uh, information there. So
1: well, it looks like you've done a lot of them, philanthropist level things as well in terms of food and just all kinds of other things, but we have some opportunity for some case studies uh, if we get to the end of this. So let's start with the definition of geohazard mitigation.
3: Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's something geohazard is kind of the shorthand for geologic hazard, and I think an important thing is to understand these are naturally occurring uh, geologic processes um where we get most interested them as a in a society is the damage that they cause right loss of property injury uh, impact to infrastructure um and these can be fast they can be slow um they can take a few seconds or they can take a million years so um it's pretty wide it includes avalanches earthquakes volcanoes those kind of things but what we're going to talk about today and what we deal with the most is Landslides, debris flow, rockfall, uh, severe erosion, um, scour and sinkholes. Those are the ones that really impact uh, infrastructure uh, disproportionately are also a lot more common uh, here in the U.S. And so that's where, you know, I think there's a lot of people that study geohazards uh, in kind of an esoteric sense. Um, I get most interested in them with how they impact society and infrastructure. Um, so when we talk about geohazard mitigation, you know, I think a lot of people talk about, well, how do we fix this? And these natural processes are really uh fairly powerful, so we use the term mitigate uh because sometimes the option of actually repairing these isn't really feasible. so if you imagine um and this we see this in Colorado, there's a few places where there's the uh, major roads are built on huge landslides <clears throat> and these things move and have moved for centuries. And there may be uh things that we can do to slow down that movement such that the the roadway uh is still passable, but we're not going to fix that. It would be, you know, perhaps billions of dollars to actually fix it. We're really talking about mitigating those. The same thing with rockfall. Uh if you look at <clears throat> take I-70 for example, um, cruising through the Glenwood Canyon corridor, to actually uh, stop every single rock that could ever fall there would be a Herculean task. It's basically impossible. So we talk about rockfall mitigation. It's really going in and assessing risk, figuring out what's going to fail next, um, spending uh, limited transportation budgets in a smart way uh, to really attack this stuff that's going to be a problem um, sooner rather than later. Um, and you guys mentioned discussion of climate change, we've seen, uh, uh, even in the time I've been in the industry, um, seeming acceleration of, of these kind of issues. Not only do you have more and more infrastructure being built, a lot of that infrastructure is is ending its service life or reaching the end of its, its natural service life. And then you also see um, changes in climate. And that can actually hit it both ways. So in California right now, we're seeing this atmospheric river. We will go do a bunch of landslide repair projects as a result of that. Um, so when you see heavy rains, that's kind of an obvious uh, a trigger for a lot of the stuff we do. But we also see that in periods of drought. So rockfall, for example, um, you'll see rock slopes that if they get intensely dry, um, some of the um, Gluing effect that you see from clays that are in the in the uh, rock joints uh, comes off, and so you actually see dry rock falls as part of that. So uh, obviously excessive rain is a big trigger, but the uh, any kind of climate change, anything out of the natural uh, cycle, can also cause these. And the impact is huge, right? So the USGS uh, has estimated it somewhere between two and four billion dollars, and 20 to 50 deaths as a result of landslides just in the US. <clears throat> so that's one category of geohazard in our country. That's two to 4 billion, and those numbers are probably light. If you add in all the other categories of geohazards, it's, uh, it's quite a bit more than that. So um, really a pretty big, pretty big issue that society faces. So. so
1: tell us about GSI, all the things that they do
3: in terms yeah. of
1: solutions and innovations. And also I hear it's interesting on how you got involved with them.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, GSI is one of those kind of <clears throat> uh, fortuitous businesses. Uh, the two founders were former Colorado Department of Transportation geo practitioners, and they were uh, government employees that uh, really just adored their work. They liked fixing landslides. They liked dealing with rockfall. They did a lot of research throughout their career. Uh, And then after, you know, 30 years of government service, they were on the retirement list and uh, didn't want to stop having fun. So they formed GSI uh, really around a innovative tool that's called the Soil Nail Launcher. Um, So this is basically a nail gun, supersized a hundred times. So instead of a, a small Small nail, the nails that this gun shoots in are 20 feet long, uh, inch and a half diameter steel bars or tubes that are shot in at 250 miles an hour. So um, kind of a fun tool to uh, to work with. And uh, that was the first tool we had in our arsenal for landslide mitigation. Um, kind of a fun a uh, story on that, too, uh, the original technology was developed by the British military. Um, the compressed air technology was meant to, to shoot nerve gas canisters, actually, so they could shoot something the size of a thermos up to seven miles away just using compressed air. Uh, British military got out of that in the 60s and 70s. Uh, in the 80s, it was repurposed uh, to shoot these nails. And uh we were fortunate enough to get the uh, uh technology um, and that was kind of the start of of geostabilization. We've since added multiple different uh modes of technology to, to attack uh quite a variety of geohazards, but that's the one that really got us put on the map, real innovative uh, uh technology there. Uh I was uh um in the US Marine Corps when I got out. Um, I went to graduate school and then, uh, was actually contemplating a degree in law or a a career in law and, uh, was able to jump in with, uh, GSI, um, you know, side note, my dad was one of the founders, so blatant nepotism there, but, uh, was able to jump in and, and start working there and eventually, uh, uh, became the president, CEO and, uh, ran it, uh, you know, since 2008, uh, up until 2020, uh, when <clears throat> brought in a new uh, CEO, and I've since uh, moved to board board membership now, so I can help a lot more on the strategic piece, and then a little bit on the research and development as well. Very cool,
1: Jamie.
0: Any thoughts or questions so far? Um, I, you know. I'm always looking for a new tool for my uh, garage, but I think a soil <laughs> nail launcher might be something my wife tells me no on. Yeah, a twenty-foot nail, yeah, you could do
1: some
0: damage. Wow, that's that's pretty amazing though when you when you think about you know the ability to to mitigate the the landslide risks in areas yeah. simply by um, you know, basically creating a a metal infrastructure on that hillside to, to hold the rock and soil in place. That's pretty innovative.
3: It is. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting The British, you know, it's not really, uh, discussed much in the U S here, but everybody in Britain would remember uh, something called the Aberfan disaster. So this was in Wales where they do a lot of coal mining, uh, the tailings from the, uh, From the coal mines, they'll pile up on on these slopes above, unfortunately, above villages. Uh, In Aberfan, they had a period of really high rainfall. There was a natural spring that was coming up underneath uh, one of these uh, uh, coal piles. And the whole thing liquefied. This was in October of 1966. So you imagine this massive amount of coal waste uh, coming down the hill, Uh, totally liquid. It hit a junior high school, uh, killed 116 kids, uh, went on and hit a row of houses in the village, killing another 28. Um, So a real huge loss of life. Um, And that's actually uh, the ability to be able to remediate large areas like a a coal spoils uh, pile was one of the uh, reasons why the soil launcher was developed. Unfortunately, it was never really uh commercially uh pursued there in the UK. Um so when we got access to the technology, we actually went over to Wales. It was in an old barn, <laughs> we put it back together, brought it to Colorado, and uh, you know, the rest is history, 20 plus years of of fixing landslides. We do not all with the soil nail launcher, but we're fixing around 20 geohazards a week. Uh so we'll average about a thousand every year. Uh, since our inception um well over five thousand um, so it's uh it's been a really interesting <clears throat> uh, run in terms of of the stuff we've seen um, on the geohazard side Jamie,
0: let's go back to you for a second yeah, i nah, because i i've you know, my daughter, I live in Maryland um, on the East Coast, and my daughter went to school in Ohio. I did a lot of driving back and forth on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and there were areas yep. in there that had a whole bunch of signs that said rockfall area and okay. danger rockfall. And I saw all yep. kinds of, you know, different things trying to keep, you know, designed to keep the rocks from rolling down onto the highway. Yep. Um, but I'm sure you probably are very familiar with that kind of stuff. We do a lot of rockfall and, um, you know, the
3: rockfall mitigation is really an interesting one, especially in terms of new technologies. So um, what we've been working a lot with lately is kind of predictive analysis. So one of the challenges for like the Pennsylvania Tur- Turnpike Authority, they have a certain amount of budget every year for geohazard mitigation. And they know they're going to have a certain amount. It's going to be emergencies. But they're also using a good bit of their budget for proactive uh, remediations, just like CDOT does, just like Caltrans. All the infrastructure owner, owners will do that. Um, but the real question is, well, which slope is going to fail first? Uh, where are rocks going to come down? And it's kind of tough to, to figure that out. I mean, you can look and see <clears throat> where slopes have failed in the past. Uh, you can look at geology. You can look at... Um, A lot of different things but it is tough to predict and so what we've been doing more with is um, using drones we can do something called photogrammetry where actually fly the slope and video it and then using those uh, pictures they can stitch those together and get a 3d model Uh, there's a couple different ways to do this as well with lidar and other technologies but the interesting thing is these new technologies allow us to fly and look at slopes uh, over time and see what they're doing in terms of movement. And that's really a great predictor. So, you know, a lot of times people think, well, rock fall, it just, it's there, it's stable, and then it falls down, uh, that it's this uh, immediate kind of response. But a lot of rocks and rock slopes will move sometimes in the order of six or eight inches uh, before they finally fail. Sometimes that initial movement over time uh is something that you can actually catch. And so uh, that way you can direct your dollars towards uh, a variety of different things. So, you know, the easiest thing to do is to go up and do something called scaling. So we'll actually oftentimes get guys on ropes, they rappel down uh, using bars or airbags or other techniques. Actually, I think the airbags that they use were originally developed for the emergency response uh, industry to lift up cars and those kind of things, but they'll pull the unstable rocks off. If it's bigger, we can drill holes and blast it off. Uh, If we want to just keep it in place, we can drill rock bolts in. And then a lot of times when you see this uh, wire mesh on the slopes, most of the time that's a draped mesh. So we actually will pin it up at the top and it kind of lays against the slope that way, when rocks do dislodge, they're contained by the mesh and will land in the ditch rather than going out in the road. So, a lot of really neat uh, technologies there. A lot of stuff out of the mining industry uh, that's been used in rockfall, but again, also a new industry. I think uh, you know we uh, we just had a, a guy retire with GSI that actually was one of the innovators uh, had one of the first rockfall mitigation companies in North America, and he's. Just retiring now, so uh, even the the concept of rockfall mitigation as a service, as an industry, is is also you know not more than
2: thirty years old. So,
1: wow. So Dan, um, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating. It's not really an area that I've thought a lot about, but obviously this is all extremely important. It's really interesting. I guess the question I have is, um, I, I just be curious to hear what your thoughts are on. How either communities or governments or other organizations are doing in terms of like as they plan new infrastructure, yeah How, like do they think about this regularly like what's your experience with like obviously there's lots of infrastructure that exists today that needs this type yeah. of mitigation. How do groups think about stuff as they build new
3: yeah, it's a great question, and I think what you're seeing a lot more of is is communities kind of getting tired of uh, of uh, having you know, houses come down hills and those kind of things. So you're seeing a lot more in terms of zoning and geohazard mapping. So I live in Telluride. Um, the entire county or the area around here has been mapped in terms of geohazard. So if you're proposing to build uh, in an area that's a known rockfall hazard, you have to go through and show you know how you're dealing with that hazard, or you know, very often not being able to build at all. And so that, I think, is, uh, you know, obviously people complain about that kind of stuff in terms of the property rights issues and these kind of things. But, you know, for the communities to be uh, resilient there, I think that, that that zoning piece is a big one. And just knowing about the, the hazards and the risks and, and trying to mitigate that. The Federal Highways is pushing a lot in terms of resilience in infrastructure. Um, and so what they mean by that is the ability to anticipate prepare for adapt uh to conditions to withstand or respond to uh disruptions and when we talk about resilient to geo hazards uh you're talking about you know weather events natural disasters um those kind of things and so um that can take a lot of different forms a lot of times it would be saying hey we're going <clears> to <throat> oversize a bridge knowing that we've got uh Uh, debris flow possibilities coming through this area. Um, But what we're seeing a lot of as well is actually using some new technologies to create uh, resilience. So I talked about the draped uh, wire mesh that's used to control rock fall. That same type of mesh can actually be um, installed on earthen slopes. So oversteeping slopes that are almost stable, but not really um, you can use soil nails, either launched or drilled, uh, to pin that mesh uh, on slopes like that. And what you see over time is grass developing, uh, vegetation kind of covering that slope. And then, you know, 100 years later, the mesh is all rusted away. You've got tree roots and other uh, biological uh, agents doing your work for you. So uh, you've created a real long-term resilient Uh, slope there by using some of those newer technologies.
1: Okay, any thoughts from you?
4: Yeah. Um, So when you were looking to mitigate, I kind of got to phrase this, we often see a lot of the the videos and images that are in the news during, you know, disasters that involve flooding are these mansions, these, you know, giant houses or houses that are built like absurdly close yeah. to the ocean. So yeah. when do you, when do you, when, or I guess, how do you make the decision on, you know, is a home actually worth saving? Should the, the homeowner yeah. never have built there in the first place? Like how do you make those calls or who makes those calls?
3: Yeah, gosh, <clears throat> I'll tell you like, you know, one of the reasons I I got into this line of business is to really like help, help people out. Uh, and that is probably the most heartbreaking piece of what we, we, we do is, A lot of our work is for government agencies uh, to fix roadways and these kind of things. But we do do a reasonable amount of of work for uh, private homeowners. And so going out there and seeing, you know, a massive landslide impacting a house, you know, knowing that it'd be $1.4 million to actually repair this landslide and it's a $400,000 house and, you know, homeowners insurance policies don't cover uh, landslides or slope instabilities. Um, that is just heartbreaking. (laughs) You know, if, uh, if I was able to follow my, uh, my will on all those things, the company would have gone out of business a long time ago for us doing a bunch of pro bono work. But, um, you do see these pictures too of, of, you know, uh, mansions on the coastal bluffs in California. Um, a lot of that goes towards, you know, just bad zoning, you know, twenty or thirty years ago, uh, when everybody thought that the, these rock cliffs are never going to regress, um, now we know that there is ways to model. There are ways to model the regression of those cliffs, and so uh, you can figure out what are what are proper setbacks for for that kind of stuff. But most of the stuff that you see now is. You know, it was built long enough ago before they had some of those those things in place, and unfortunately, when you see sea level rise, uh, additional weather, um, those kind of things, it, it speeds up uh, that regression. That's a real tough one in uh, in California too, because there are some technologies that fix um, some of that cliff uh, regression, but California as a as a state has come up with um, You know, they're very well dictated by the California Coastal Commission, and the Coastal Commission um, has taken the stance that certain technologies are not appropriate uh, for these bluffs, and they also kind of recognize that there is a natural um, uh, erosion and sediment deposition that keeps um, natural systems working on the coast. And so that uh, erosion is a natural thing that if you totally prevent it, you can cause some other... Other effects there, so uh, we just I just saw on LinkedIn a picture of a mansion, uh, you know, and the cliff starting to collapse in front of it. And the comment was, "Hey, you can soil nail that, and uh, you know, use shotcrete, which is a sprayed concrete, uh, to stabilize that cliff, which is true uh, in theory, but being able to get that uh, across the Coastal Commission would probably be a no go. So that house will probably be uh, demolished." um, as they, uh, as that cliff continues to regress. So, um, these are tough, tough things to see. And especially when you see, you know, individual homeowners bearing the brunt of, of those things that they had really no, uh, no hand in it's, it's pretty heartbreaking a lot of times. I can imagine. Um,
1: we're kind of winding down here, but I have two more questions what are some of this uh, clearly your all of this is to try to keep the public safe. So yep. what are some of the strategies you use when responding to the effects of a national disaster yep. and how do you improve? Interest? Is there a alternative? Yeah. Oh.
2: Yeah. Great point.
3: Okay. <clears throat> um, one of the things that, uh, we really prided ourselves on is, is the speed of response with the right resources. So um, if you look at uh, GSI, we would have typically one engineer per crew. Um, so we've got you know more than 50 crews that are out there fixing landslides. Uh, we've got over 60 engineers, and that's on purpose. So uh, if we get a call from Colorado Department of Transportation saying a road is failing, Uh, We can get out there within 24 hours um, with an engineer to actually do the design of the remediation and then actually bring a crew in within 48 hours, uh, oftentimes much faster, to start that uh, initial repair. And one of the things we've really gotten um, good at over the years is it's being able to tweak our design as we learn more while fixing the slide. So what I mean by that is if you've got a landslide in a roadway, uh, a typical first response is to go and do core drilling uh, investigation to see what's going on in the subsurface. Um, and that's great. That's a, a good way to do it. But if you don't have time, if the thing is actively failing and moving, um, what we've done is come out there and actually start Soil nailing, uh, the uh, the landslide, you know, starting to fix it, and then in the process of soil nailing, we're drilling. We can actually get a pretty good sense of what's going on in the subsurface, and refine our engineering assumptions uh, to better uh, produce a, a good repair. So I think that's the big, you know, a big piece of of what we found that works is a fast response. Uh, with the right people, and then being able to tweak your design as you actually construct, it's it's kind of unusual, but it works really well uh, in the geohazard space.
1: Becky,
4: you made a point. Will you talk about that. Yeah. So a few years ago, we went to Nantucket, um, and there's the the Sconset Bluffs, and there's obviously a lot of really lovely homes that are located uh, located right at the top of the bluffs. And we remember reading about, and I've since sort of half followed it. Um, things called geotubes and there were you know, obviously people who were in favor of it and there were people who were vehemently opposed to the geotubes and I was just curious if you knew anything about that particular form of mitigation.
3: Um, the geotubes I'm familiar with would be a form of dewatering. Um, I don't know whether that's the same thing that you're
4: uh, that you're referring to. I have no idea. All I know <laughs> no. is there's, there's been homes we'll have that have... Yeah, they've been—I mean—relocating re- homes back from the edge because the you know the right. cliffside has been slowly crumbling over time. Um, yeah,
3: yeah. There's especially when you're looking at coastal bluff, it starts getting really complex, right? So a lot of times you can deal with what you see—the bluff there itself. Uh, there's ways to uh, soil nail that, or you know, other technologies that strengthens uh, what you see. A lot of times, though, um, you know that erosion is starting from below. So there's uh, the way the sand uh, kind of naturally cycles through um, can be interrupted through breakwaters, or when I mentioned the the geotubes that I'm familiar with, they can actually um, pump uh, water and sand into a a giant kind of bag, and the water comes out, with the sand remains. Um, so you can actually build uh, underwater structures that will uh, slow the beach erosion that then goes up and, and deals and impacts the cliff. Um, the big question there is how, uh, unnatural are you comfortable being? So, you know, the California coastal commission would talk about sediment transport, right? That, that the natural environment there relies on a certain amount of erosion and cliff erosion and sediment transport going into the ocean. Um, And if you stop that through all these innovative technologies, you are disturbing the natural system. Now, if you're a homeowner, yes, (laughs) let's disturb the natural system, save my house, save my views, those kind of things. Um, If you're, you know, on a a different tack, hey, we need to preserve the natural systems. You need to move your house or uh, demolish it. And then it comes into... um, you know, if you're going to do something, who pays for that? Is that something that the collective county or town or uh, FEMA or FHWA or these folks are going to be paying for that? Or is that the responsibility of the individual homeowners? Um, so those all get to be pretty complex and bring in a lot more issues than just, you know, can you fix that? Yeah.
1: One more rather interesting question. Um, how do geotechnical hazards affect autonomous vehicles? I'm sorry, say that again. How do what kind of geotechnical hazards apply to autonomous vehicles?
3: Oh, yeah. This is something that's actually like a good bit of, uh, I think, a good bit of news. Um, So if you look at uh, one of the things we've seen is increase in, uh, you know, unpredictable weather uh, and the kind of degradation of the country's infrastructure have led to. More work in the geohazard mitigation industry. Um, something that uh, you know these departments of transportation struggle with is, as that requirement goes up, they still have other requirements for paving and striping and signs and guardrail and all the kind of stuff that they need to do to keep roads uh, safe. As you start transitioning, this is kind of an interesting concept that uh, the transportation research board has been identifying. Um, One of the good things about switching more towards autonomous vehicles is that certain safety measures like long sight distances, really good striping, uh, awesome signage, all these kind of things that autonomous vehicles don't have the same need for, uh, a lot of that safety money that would be used for striping and signage and these kind of things can be shifted towards the more unpredictable stuff, which would be rockfall mitigation, landslide repair and these kind of things. So, I think that is something where you say autonomous vehicles uh, you know, make driving safer in general by taking kind of the human factor out of it. They also if fully implemented shift some of the safety dollars uh towards um geohazard mitigation, which is something that's uh you know seems to be getting worse and worse every year so kind of an interesting point that uh, has been discussed at the the
0: national level recently
1: well it looks like we could do a whole podcast on that alone,
0: <laughs> right jamie absolutely and and this has been fabulous to listen to and learn i i you know one of the reasons i do this podcast colby is to to learn amazing technologies and things out there i'm a i i love learning about how you know, things work. And yeah. you know, the, the soil nail launcher is, you know, just a great piece of equipment to think about how that can be used. And and, and it's one of the things that we talk about here all the time is educating ourselves and our, our responders and people in uh, government that we work with about technologies that can be brought in to assist in stabilizing an unstable situation, um you know where we where we need to get vehicles through and we need to be able to perform rescues in a safe manner, knowing that there's technologies to stabilize that hillside and stabilize things before we are able to get into a situation I think is really important, so thank you for sharing with us today Thank you. And uh, I do want to remind, remind folks that uh, we want to thank Paragon Medical Education Group for their continued sponsorship of our program. Um, their education resources for disaster teams are be um, beyond compare, really, in the industry with the things that they do and the people that they train. So definitely check them out and bring them into your jurisdiction when you're looking for somebody to perform some unique and customized training procedures in your area. You can reach out to them at paragonmedicalgroup.com. And there are also links right in our uh, Facebook group over at Disaster Podcast on the Facebook page, as well as at disasterpodcast.com. So we look forward to that. Um, Colby, where can folks find out more about Geostabilization International?
3: Yeah, if you jump on uh, our website, it's just gsi.us. And, um, we've got a lot of case studies and, and those kind of things on there. So, um, should be something for everybody. We've got, uh, work in pretty much all 50 States. So, um, East coast, West coast, South, North Canada, that kind
0: of stuff. So, well, we'll definitely have links in the show notes for this episode and, uh, definitely urge people to check out the, uh, the video of the soil nail launcher in action. It's pretty cool. Um, Just the things I get to do in the background while everybody else is talking. So uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, uh, Becky, where can folks find you if they need to see what's going on and what you're talking about?
4: Find me on Blue Sky at WXBEX, LinkedIn at Becky DePodwin, and the Disaster Podcast Facebook group.
0: Awesome. Dan, how about you?
2: Uh, You can find me on Twitter at WXDepo, that's D-E-P-O, and in the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. And Sam.
1: Sam you're muted.
0: Are you there, Sam? Maybe she's um Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs>
0: you pulled a Joe. Joe wasn't here. So <laughs> <laughs> I had to
1: be the one that couldn't find the mute button. Now you find me under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11 in social media. And of course, as mentioned, our wonderful community on Facebook and is afterpodcast.com. How about
0: you, Jamie? You can find me under the handle PodMedic in most social media sites out there. So please, friend, follow, or otherwise catch up with me there. And, of course, don't forget that you can subscribe to the podcast over at DisasterPodcast.com. There are links to subscribe on your mobile device using your favorite podcast app or uh, catcher. And you can do all of that under the right under the audio player on any episode page at DisasterPodcast.com. Um, Sam, it's it's great having Colby on tonight. I'm glad you were able to, to line him up, and I, I love learning about new things and, and technologies that are out there to uh, to mitigate disaster.
1: Yeah, more than we knew. Um, you know, we talk to uh, our friend Dan all the time about building infrastructure, but this is a whole different thing.
0: Yeah, I, I wonder what it would them. be like to have Dan Zaner and, <laughs> you know, and Colby on at the same time.
1: That's already working in my head. And I, Colby, I think we're going to do that because the two of you would compliment each other quite well.
0: And Happy to be back
1: anytime. You betcha. And we can talk about some of those case studies. So, you know, we always learn something amazing, but it's one thing to have the building that falls down, but why does it? who's going to fix it? How do you mitigate it? And I think that's a little bit.